our youth minister, Jeremy, uh, he keeps a list on his phone of what we call hunterisms. It's a collection of memorable sayings of our very own Hunter Cornette. Now, Hunter's fully aware of the list, and I'm not going to share any of the list with you this morning. Someone was disappointed. But if you know Hunter, then you're probably familiar with many of the sayings that, would you, you, that you'd find on that list. But when you get to know someone, uh, you pick up on certain things that they like to say. Through the years, uh, different guys in the youth group have done impersonations of me. And they're quick to point out some of the favorite things that I like to say. If I remember correctly, I see Jack back there, Jack Johnson. One year, we were in Croatia, and I believe it was Ethan Williams and Jack Johnson. Both did impersonations of me and uh, had some of my mannerisms and favorite sayings down. Most recently, at an all-school retreat, there's some leaked video footage of Logan Pickerel doing his best Barrett Kaufman impersonation. Now, I'm not going to show it this morning to you, but I must admit it was pretty good. And uh, one of the sayings uh, that the youth will use a lot when impersonating me uh, is during the welcome, I like to say that I'm one of the ministers here at Southside. And so that's kind of a go-to when impersonating me. Um, And if if you haven't picked up on it yet, I like to say that on purpose. I don't, it's not just something I say without thinking, but I do that intentionally. And if I've never told you, I want to do that now. I do that for two reasons. There's two reasons I like to use that phrase. First, I introduce myself in that way to encourage your participation in the ministry here at Southside. To reflect Paul's language in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're all ministers of reconciliation. So we're all ministers here. One of our core beliefs here at Southside is that every member is a minister. And so when I introduce myself as just one of the ministers here, I don't mean just one of the five full-time ministers here. I mean one of the 300 and something ministers who are in the room this morning. And then second, I introduce myself in that way to emphasize that Jesus is the one that we've all come to hear from today. I'm just one of the ministers. You know, I get in how we're set up that I tend to have a lot of the face time. I tend to be up here in front way more than any of you. But I'm just one of the ministers. There's nothing special about me. My only job here this morning is to point you to him because it's all about him. I'm just one of the ministers. Jesus is the only one in the room who deserves any kind of special recognition. The last thing I want is for you to walk away from here today thinking about me. Instead, my prayer is for you to see Christ more clearly today. My prayer is is for you to know Christ more fully today. It's for you to walk a little more closely with him today and, and look a little more like him 
today. And I share that with you because our text this morning begins with this incredible scene. There's a large gathering of people at Cornelius' house in Caesarea. They're awaiting the arrival of Peter from Joppa. And this is just such a significant event. I'm glad we're able just to kind of camp here today because this is such a significant event that probably doesn't get the attention it deserves. Because when Peter, a good religious Jew, when he crossed over the threshold of the door and into the home of not only a Gentile, but a Roman, he entered into a whole new world. That step, and I know this may sound like an overstatement, but it's similar to when Neil Armstrong first stepped on the moon. If you recall what he said, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, because Peter's step across the threshold and into the home of Cornelius is no small step. But it's a giant leap of faith. Peter makes note of its significance publicly in verse 28. It's the very first words out of his mouth. He can't say anything else until he acknowledges what just happened. He says, you're well aware that what I just did by crossing over the threshold and into your home is against our law. For a Jew is not to associate with Gentiles or to visit them. So Peter stood before them as a lawbreaker. It's one of those moments when he must have thought, well, there's no turning back now. Yet that step across the threshold of Cornelius' home represented the first step of many over the last 2,000 years for disciples of Jesus who have courageously and obediently stepped across racial boundaries, who have courageously and obediently stepped across language barriers, stepped across social lines, stepped across cultural differences in order to tell someone the story of Jesus Christ. This was the first step. And it's, it's just an awesome scene. You, you want to just pause here and take it all in for a moment. And so here's Peter. He's standing in front of this large gathering of Gentiles. And what happens next? Verse 25 reads, as Peter entered the home, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. I mean, could it get any more better than that? This scene needs to be a, a painting hanging on a wall somewhere in some museum. I hope it is. It's just this incredible scene. Remember, we are in Caesarea, a town built by Herod the Great, named after Caesar Augustus. In fact, there was a large temple there in Caesarea dedicated to the worship of Caesar 
It was the Roman capital city for the province of Judea. It was the showpiece of Roman culture in that area. It represented all of the wealth, all of the significance of the Roman Empire. And here is this powerful Roman centurion and all that he represents and all that he symbolizes throwing himself at the feet of this Jewish fisherman. You know, we talked quite a bit last week about Cornelius. He was this extraordinary man. He really was. But he didn't have a saving faith. And so Peter was sent by God to tell him the good news about Jesus. And of all the great things that we said about him last week, what stands out to me most about this man is this right here that we see in this text, and that's his humility. Cornelius humbles himself before Peter. He gets low. This big, powerful, strong Roman in his hometown, on his home turf, there were more Gentiles and Romans who lived in Caesarea than Jews. Here in front of all his family and friends, He makes himself small and insignificant. That's his posture. That's his attitude. He has open hands to receive what Peter has come to share with him. You see, humility is the key to our being able to hear the good news about Jesus Christ. Three different times in Scripture, God says, I stand in opposition against the proud, but I freely pour out my grace on the humble. Man, I love that verse. We find it three times throughout Scripture. God says, I stand in opposition against the proud, but I freely pour out my grace on the humble. Andrew Murray called humility the secret of redemption. I mentioned last week I've been reading through uh, the Old Testament in the mornings, and uh, I came across 1 Kings. I was in 1 Kings a couple of days ago. Man, I was so excited about this. I was sharing it with William on the way to school in the car. I'm sure he was, got in, was just as excited about it as I was at 7.45 in the morning. But uh, this is just awesome, man. Oh, man, this is so good. I, 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 and I've read this so many times, but, man, it just struck me different uh, as I was reading it this time around in 1 Kings chapter 21. Um, but 1 Kings 21 tells us about, we're, we're reading about Ahab, King Ahab. And uh, Ahab, if, if you remember, he, Ahab is married to Jezebel. Just the names. You just got to say the names, right? And you know, oh, man, those are some bad folks, right? And and Ahab here in chapter 21, he was upset because he wanted this vineyard that didn't belong to him and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, Jezebel steps in and, and they, you know, gets him this vineyard and 
I want to read to you, picking up in verse 25, because this, man, this is just, this is, this is amazing. Verse 25, it reads, there was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. Scripture here says there was never a man like him. There's been some evil dudes, but none like Ahab sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols, like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. But when Ahab heard these words, there were words of judgment against him pronounced by the Lord. He tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. The Lord says, have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but instead I'll bring it on his house in the days of his son. Ow. Humility. God says, I'll stand in opposition against those who are proud but I will freely pour out my grace on those who are humble. If Cornelius was one of the good guys, Ahab was on the other end of the spectrum, but both received the grace of God because God freely gives it to the humble. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humility is the way of Christ. This is exactly what we see Cornelius. This is his attitude. This is his posture. But instead of humbling himself in the sight of the Lord, he humbles himself in the sight of Peter. Peter's like, wait, hold up. You know, this ain't happening. Peter says, I'm not the man, but I know the man. And so he asks asks Cornelius to stand up. And when Peter begins to speak in verse 34, he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Another translation says that God does not show uh, partiality, shows no partiality. Um, Craig Keener is a professor at Asbury and knows way more about the Greek language uh, than me. And he points out, Uh, that this word translated favoritism or partiality, depending on your translation, I love this. It literally has the meaning of lifting up one's face. That's what it means. It means to lift up one's face. And so that word comes with this idea that God makes no distinction in how he reacts to people, man or woman, Gentile or Jew. He makes no distinction but he lifts up the face of all who humbly come to him. I love that. 
picture. I love that image. Well, Cornelius and this large gathering of people in his home have come humbly to listen to everything that the Lord has commanded Peter to tell them. And so what does Peter tell them? Well, he tells them the story of Jesus. I started today um, by talking about how we all have different things that we like to say. Well, our good brother over there, Kevin Wooten, has a couple things that he likes to say. We could call them Kevinisms, I guess. I've heard other people uh, in the church say it, what I'm getting ready to tell you, and then refer to Kevin. Um, and, And this is it. He says that good things happen when you go to church. And that's a true saying, and I want to use that saying and just change it up a little bit and say it like this. Good things happen when you tell the story. Good things happen when you tell the story. You see, what Peter does here doesn't take a seminary degree. He just tells the story. Let me ask you a question this morning. When was the last time you told someone the story? Because good things happen when you tell the story. Peter could not even finish telling the story. Did you notice as we read this morning? He couldn't even get it out. When in verse 44... While Peter was still speaking the words, the Holy Spirit came on all who were listening to the story. Oh, man, we got to tell the story. Good things happen when you tell the story. Let's pick up in verse 36 and look here at Peter's final sermon in the book of Acts. In these verses... We have Peter's final, his last recorded sermon. And here he tells the story of Jesus. He's been, he's been granted this wonderful opportunity in this house full of, of Gentiles, of Cornelius and his family and his friends. And given this opportunity, Peter tells the story. And there's so much that could be said here. I mean, I could do... I could do a, a couple of week series just on this sermon, but then we would never get through Acts. So this morning, I just here all I want to do is highlight three points. I'm just going to highlight three points from Peter's telling of the story. I think they're just kind of crucial points, kind of anchors, parts of the story as Peter tells it, and that can encourage us as we tell the story. Here's the first part of the story that I want to share with you this morning. This is, comes, from verses, um, comes from verses 39 and 40. Here's how, how I want to summarize it. They killed him, but God raised him. They killed him, but God raised him. Perhaps this is the best way to summarize the gospel. 
a sense of the good news. You know, if you're going to tell the story, you've got to include that part. They killed him, but God raised him. The devil, all of the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly realms, sinful humanity, all of them came together on the same team. They joined forces and did their worst to God's best. They killed him. They hung him on a tree. They crucified him. They humiliated him. They cursed the one called the Son of God. It was a perfect storm. Evil, suffering, death, darkness, sin, all came together on that day and crushed Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 40. But God, but God, circle or highlight that, come back to that one, but God, when you're at your lowest, but God, when you have failed, but God, when you're at the end of your rope, but God, when things look bleak, but God, but God raised him from the dead. Easter Sunday changed everything. His story changed history. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he became the firstborn of a new creation. Paul would write that death has lost its victory. Death has lost its sting. And what that means is for those of us in Christ, death is no longer the end of our story. Instead, it is now just the beginning of our stories. Real life, true life, the kind of life you've always wanted does not begin until death. You no longer have to fear death because it's now the beginning of life. Oh, there's some, there's some great things about our life now. But listen, if, if you're familiar with the outline of a good book, our death used to be the final chapter of our book. But God, God has taken death out of the final chapter of our book and instead put it into the preface. Are you following me? All of this life, I'm 50 years old, so 50 years plus whatever I have left until I die. It's just the preface of my story. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I know a book is really, really good, I don't even read the preface. 
I just skip right over it and jump into chapter 1. The gospel has made this life just a preface to our stories. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and theologian, one of my faith heroes. There's a great biography about that thick on his life. But uh, when he, the day he was hanged, he was in a concentration camp. He had been captured. And uh, the morning that he was hanged, he was with the group there in his little camp before he was taken out, and uh, he was preaching a sermon to the folks that were there. And right before they came, he concluded, one of the pilots who was in that camp and made it out alive, that's how we know that he said this. He said, this is the end. But for me, the beginning of life. Billy Graham. You all have heard of Billy Graham before. He said, Someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. He said, don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive then than I am now. I will have just changed my address. They killed him. But God, but God raised him. And his story has changed history. That's the first thing I want to point out about the telling of the story. The second part is this. Jesus is both anointed and appointed. He's both anointed and appointed. He's been anointed as the Lord of all. This is verses 36 through 38. We read about this. This one has become the Lord of all. God, verse 38, anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then in verse 42, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he's the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. So he's the Lord of all. He's been anointed as Lord of all, and he's been appointed as judge of all. You know, as we, as we tell the story of Jesus, we're quick to point out that he's the Savior of all, and he is, very much so. But to tell the whole story of Jesus, to write on one's heart every word of the story, we must also include that he's Lord of all and judge of all. All authority over life and death has been given to him. All authority under heaven and on earth has been given to him. And conversion to Christ is about our submitting to the authority of Jesus. And it's this aspect of conversion, of the conversion of Cornelius, 
that I want to highlight this morning because his conversion is going to make him right before God, but wrong before Caesar. As a centurion in the Roman army, he had pledged his absolute loyalty to Caesar. And conversion for Cornelius was so much more than just assuring him a spot in heaven. This was about a change of allegiance. The decision by Cornelius to follow Jesus is a decision that would have at best led to his dismissal and at worst led to his death. But Christ requires one's ultimate loyalty because Jesus is both anointed and appointed. Savior of all, he's Lord of all, and he's judge of all. And then third, the third thing that I want to point out here that's mentioned twice in verse 39 and verse 41 is that we have witnesses. We have witnesses. You know, the witnesses are an important aspect of the gospel story. This is because Christianity is based on events surrounding Christ's ministry on earth. And though we ourselves have not seen the risen Christ with our own eyes, our faith, my faith, rests on the fact that he did rise from the dead and that Peter and other reliable witnesses attested to that fact. I love how Peter puts it in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16 when he writes, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Most of you are familiar with this, uh, but I want to point it out. We've talked about it before already in this study of Acts, but... The word translated as witness uh, in the Greek is martyros, and it's, it, it, originally meant, it originally just meant to testify. But because so many of these witnesses were murdered because of their testimony, the word martyros also came to mean martyr. You know, I've, I've, I've seen enough crime shows, I've, I've watched enough movies to know that if, if someone sees a crime happen and becomes a witness, then all the good guys are trying to get that witness to the witness stand, and all the bad guys are trying to what? Snuff them out. Get rid of them. And that's what happens to the apostles. All the bad guys are wanting to put an end to this Jesus movement. And so the plan is a pretty simple one and a very common one. Get rid of all the eyewitnesses. Peter says, we're witnesses of everything he did. 
man, I, I can't emphasize this one enough. I, I, uh, I had a hard time sleeping last night. Karen, Karen was a witness to that. Um, but I was up at 3, and the Lord told me to write, the Lord told me, to write this down on my phone. And when I don't have my glasses on, I can't see a thing, so I'm, I just pulled my phone out and wrote this down on my phone. But, but here's what I wrote that I wanted to share with you this morning. We know the story because Peter gave his life telling the story. You hear that? That's how important witnesses. We are all in here today. We know the story. We've heard the story because Peter and others gave their life telling the story. They killed him, but God raised him. Jesus is both anointed and appointed. We have witnesses. the story of Jesus. You know, the really unique part of Cornelius' conversion is that he and his friends received the Holy Spirit while Peter was still telling the story. They didn't ask. Holy Spirit just interrupted Peter fell on all who were listening to him tell the story. Good things happen when you tell the story. This morning, as the story was being told to you, it's been my prayer that the Holy Spirit was doing a new work in your heart. And if you're here this morning and you've never responded in faith to Jesus Christ. The invitation to you this morning is to come and submit to him. Surrender your life to him in baptism. Put Christ on in faith. The one they killed, God raised. His story has changed history. Let's stand together and sing.